Good morning, church. Or maybe I should say, good morning, American Taliban. Uh, because I saw an article last week in the Daily Journal, and I don't know if you can see this headline, Christian Evangelicals are America's Taliban. Actors, journalists equate American Christians to the Taliban. Now, actors and journalists, those are the usual, usual subjects or suspects, but they've actually got a theologian that they quote in here. So they're just quoting different people that are equating Christians to terrorists. Now, the reason I, I even cite that this morning and begin with that is because we're in a sermon series in 1 Peter. Most of you know that. I call it Keys to the Kingdom because Jesus said to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. So we're looking at the different subjects that he addresses, but the whole context of the letter is persecution. And as we talk about trials in today's passage, Peter means trials specifically in the sense of persecution, people being persecuted because they are Christians. We might think, well, that, you know, that doesn't really relate to me as we in America right now are not experiencing hard persecution. They are in other countries. Christians are in other countries. Ours is more soft. But I think it is still relevant to us. Uh, Johnette Binkovic has listed the five stages that a people group goes through on the way to being persecuted. Now, these are progressive stages. Starts with stereotyping then vilifying a particular group, then marginalizing, criminalizing, and finally persecuting. So where are Christians in America in those stages? Well, perhaps some combination of those first four stages, depending on where, where you live and what you're experiencing. So it, should, it could very well be that persecution is in our future as Christians or our children's or certainly our grandchildren. So whatever we read that Peter teaches us on how to cope in our lives as Christians with persecution is still relevant to us. We're preparing for that. In addition to that, we all experience trials and suffering and challenges of various kinds. It may not specifically qualify as persecution, but it still maps onto Peter's advice and teaching fairly well. But I thought of a third reason why, why this kind of teaching is relevant, and that's because there are other ways that a Christian can suffer for their faith or pay a price specifically for their faith that's not technically persecution. Let me give you some examples. For instance, you might stay in a difficult or challenging marriage because you know that Jesus says not to divorce except for adultery. And you know the damage that a divorce might do to your children, so you decide to stay in a marriage. Let me flip that around. Someone might decide to leave a marriage that is abusive or damaging to you or your children, even though outsiders may not be privy to the details, and you might be criticized, stigmatized, even judged sometimes, sometimes by, by Christians. But God, God has charged you with your children's welfare. Uh, another thing, you might have taken on the added expense of homeschooling or private schooling your children because you believe that the government schools, while free, are indoctrinating your children in that which is ungodly and true. You might sacrifice a relationship with a boyfriend because he is pressuring you to have sex with him or move in with him before marriage. You know, that's not Christian. You might commit yourself to a celibate lifestyle because you are single or divorced or separated or estranged or same-sex attracted because you know that sex is reserved for Christian marriage. 
You might live at a lower standard of living because you believe the Lord wants you to give 10% or more of your income to the kingdom of God. You might sacrifice what should have been your senior years of leisure to step into a desperate situation in order to help raise a grandchild or a great-grandchild. You might spend months or years as a caregiver for an elderly spouse or parent until it's physically impossible and then continue to invest large amounts of time to visit them in the nursing home even after maybe they've forgotten who you are due to dementia. Why? Because Jesus says to honor your father and your mother or, or your spouse. And I know, I know individuals, people in all of those situations. That's just eight situations. There could be 80 or 800 ways in which a person suffers and goes through a test or a trial because they are a Christian. So what we're going to look at today is some of the paradoxes of the Christian life. That even though we go through tests and trials... There are some other things that are true as well. You know what a paradox is. Aside from being two doctors, a paradox is a statement that appears contradictory but has a nugget of truth in it. Let's get the pericope before us this morning. Let's get this set of verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. There is a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him, even though you've never seen him. And though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious and expressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Four paradoxes here. The first one is the paradox of joy. Verse 6. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure trials for a little while. There are trials. The, the word trial here is, is in the context specific to persecution, but not just that. There, ever since Genesis, Adam and Eve, Sam, we've lived in a fallen world under the curse. There's all kinds of opportunities to suffer, experience pain and difficulty and trial. But we can still, the paradox is even though we're going through trials, we can still experience joy. Peter, who's writing this, has some personal experience along these lines. In Acts chapter 5, we read how Peter and the other apostles were beaten. They were actually whipped. With a, they were scourged because they were preaching the gospel. And here's the reaction. Luke records, Acts chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles, including Peter, left the high council after they'd been beaten, rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. You've got joy and trial, joy and suffering. Why does God allow Christians, the godly, to be persecuted sometimes by the ungodly? You know, that, that word trial is part of the answer, and there may be many answers to that. But it is through a, a trial that we are tested by God. And when a test comes from God, he's not trying to tear us down, he is trying to build us up. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, how are we to endure a trial with joy? It's painful. Where does the joy come from? 
Again, from many places, but Peter seems to focus in on the fact that relatively speaking, the sufferings that we go through in a trial are relatively short and small in comparison with our faith that there's life after death and it's going to last for eternity. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 4, our present troubles are small. They won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. It's like the man who climbed the mountain to talk to God. He's on top of the mountain. And he says, God, is it true that for you a a million years is like a minute? God said, yes. He says, God, is it true that for you a million dollars like a penny? God said, yeah. He said, God, may I have a penny? And God said, yes, in a minute. Now... That's just about the relativity of time there. But let's go back to Peter for a a minute. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus is on top of the mountain. He's transfigured like white. And there there are three people up there with him. It's Peter, James, and who? John. Peter, James, and John. While they're up on the Mount of Transfiguration, two people from the past appear to Jesus. They are Elijah and who? Moses. Elijah and Moses appear from the past. And somehow Peter knows who they are. Uh, He calls them by name, Moses and Elijah. I don't know if they had their name tags on like some of you do, but he knew who they were. And the conversation, we don't know exactly the content of the conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah that day. But Luke tells us that it had something to do with Jesus' exodus. The exodus that Jesus was shortly to experience. He's about to exit life in this world. Jesus had about eight months left to live. Eight months left in his earthly mission uh, at that time. And so Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his exit. Now, I can't prove this, so here's a qualifier. This is speculation on my part. But I just wonder if they weren't saying something to Jesus like this, like Elijah might have said to Jesus, Jesus, what are you, 30-something years old? Hey, I live to be 50, and I lived 50 hard years, trials, difficulties, persecutions. I was persecuted by Ahab. I was persecuted by Jezebel. I felt like dying many times. He said, but now, Jesus, that I have been living in heaven for 800 years. Let me tell you, those 50 years of suffering were very short and very small. So Jesus, I know you're going through it right now, and you're about to go through your greatest trial, but be strong and courageous. It'll be worth it. I wonder if Moses might have said something very similar. He said, Elijah lived to be 50, I lived to be 120. And let me tell you, those were 120 long, hard, difficult years persecuted by Pharaoh, and those Israelites were no picnic in the park to deal with. Let me tell you. He said, but now that I've been living in heaven for 1,500 years, I want to tell you, Jesus, those 120 years of trials were very short and very small. Be strong and courageous and rejoice. And the Hebrew writer says, for the joy that was set before him, for the joy Jesus endured the cross. And maybe Peter took away from a conversation like that this idea where our our troubles here and our tests and trials, comparatively speaking, are very short and very small. If Moses or Peter or or Elijah could appear to you today, Peter might say, hey, I know you're going through it. I know you're going through a big test and a big trial. But now that I've been in heaven for 2,000 years, I can tell you what I went through on earth was very short 
and very small. Be strong and courageous and hold on to your joy. So paradox number one is even though we go through trials, we still have joy. Number two, paradox of faith. That's the paradox of joy. This is the paradox of faith. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than gold. Now, the paradox here is that even though we go through trying times, these times purify and strengthen our faith. Uh, He uses the gold as an analogy here. I don't know if you know this about gold, but this is, this is how they purify gold with intense heat. It's also how they test gold. It's called an, a fire assay. So you can assay that gold and see the gold content and also purify it and get some of the impurities out and make it pure. So if you got 14 karat gold, for instance, you know, this, my ring right here, you could look at your wedding ring. If it's in one of those gold bands, 14 karat gold, that means it's about 56.5% gold content in uh, 14 karat gold. If it's 18 karat gold, it's about 75% gold content. If it's 22 karat gold, it's right around 95% gold content. I'm rounding. But, and then if it's 24 karat gold, it's 99.99% pure gold. You talk about joy. You got some of that 24 karat gold? You, know, you got some joy right there. 99.99% gold purified by fire. And Peter says, God wants us to have the gold standard when it comes to our faith. He wants to be pure. But one of the only ways to get there is to go through some testing, to go through some trial, sometimes to go through some suffering. But if we respond in the right way, it purifies and strengthens our faith. God says, Zechariah 13, I will bring the third part through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined. I will test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name and I will answer them. And I'll say they're my people and they'll say the Lord is my God. Got a couple of stories for you this morning. Let me tell you about Lieutenant Colonel Brian Birdwell. He was working in the Pentagon on September 11th, 2001, 9-11. I know we got the anniversary of 9-11 coming up this week, don't we? I I think it's Saturday. He was working there when the nose of the hijacked plane, which ripped through the walls, stopped just yards where he lay burning and bleeding with more than 60% of his body blistered, his lungs seared. Birdwell made peace with God. He readied himself for the relief of death. He said to Jesus, I'm coming to see you, but he did not die. And excruciating six days later, after being told his chance of survival was less than 1%, he said his last goodbye to his 12-year-old son, but he still didn't die. And the next 92 days were filled with agonizing treatments, physical therapy, over 39 surgeries, including facial reconstruction. He says there's no way to describe the pain a burn victim experiences in recovery. During his physical therapy, a minister visited him and said, told him, God never wastes our pain. The Birdwell disregarded the words at that time, but In 2002, he was asked to visit and encourage a badly burned young man. And that experience shaped his future. Retiring from the army in 2004, Brian, along with his wife, began a ministry to critical burn survivors, helping them to see beyond their pain to eternal realities. Here's what Birdwell says now. He says an 80-ton 757 came through at 530 miles per hour with 3,000 pounds of jet fuel. I'm still here and the plane isn't. You don't survive that because the army made you tough. You survive it because the Lord made you tough, and he has something in mind for you. 
You're going through a fire of some kind, perhaps. You're going through a trial or a test. And if you're not now, you did in the past, or you will in the future. Remember those words. The Lord has something in mind for you. We can find a purpose. It's gratuitous suffering that we rebel against. We can find a purpose in the purification and strengthening of our faith. Well, that's the paradox of faith. Here's a third paradox. It's the paradox of love. Verse 8. You love Jesus even though you have never seen him. And though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice. And there's that joy again. With a glorious, inexpressible joy. That's a lot of joy. That's big joy right there. And love. So the paradox here is that even though we do not see Jesus and have never seen Jesus, we still love Jesus. We have love for him. Normally we think of love, especially thinking of romantic love, is someone you have to see, someone you have to experience personally, be present with them, see them, love at first sight kind of points to that. You got to see them, but we don't see Jesus, right? We haven't seen Jesus. I know somebody's going to come to me after church. Oh, I've seen Jesus. Jesus appeared to me in a dream. Jesus appeared to me in a vision. Okay, I'm not going to argue with anybody's experience. Just going to repeat what Peter said. You have not seen Jesus, and you do not see him now. So the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. Jesus appeared for a very fixed period of time. After his resurrection, his personal eyewitnesses appearances lasted for 40 days and then they stopped 40 days and then he ascended into heaven and appeared to no one with one exception who was that Paul he was the exception and even Paul says lastly he appeared to me like someone who was born at the wrong time because everybody else saw him in that window so just saying I digress we don't see Jesus but we still love him. How do we come to love him? Through the word, other ways. But primarily, when we read the life of Christ in the Gospels, one of the reasons I like the one-year Bible for my personal devotions, and many of you use that as a, as a tool, is you go through the Gospels every year. Every year, January through May, you're going to be reading through the Gospels in that New Testament portion. Over and over again, reading the things that Jesus did in his three-year ministry and his death for us and his resurrection for us. These things about Jesus endear our hearts to him. We read of his teaching, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount. These teachings are the words of life. They endear us to Jesus through the word. And then we meditate on his life and we pray these scriptures about his life. And our hearts are bonded to him. Now, that's, that's even possible uh, in, in human relationships. Now, let me, here, let me tell you the second story. <clears throat> Nadia von Meck was the richest woman in Moscow, yet all of her money and fortune could not comfort her after her husband's death. So she escaped inside her luxurious home and tried to heal her broken heart by playing the music she loved on her piano. At the same time in the city of Moscow, there was a 36-year-old composer named Peter Tchaikovsky. He had no idea that his music had begun to restore hope and love to the heart of a lonely widow. Nadia felt that he understood her pain and feelings. He had masterfully turned them into the most soothing, stirring music she'd ever heard. But Nadia's infatuation with Peter's music was also attracting her to him personally. And so later, she asked her friends about his personality and his interests and even paid Tchaikovsky to write a number of musical compositions. In fact, Nadia became his number one supporter over time. She also became his closest confidant and companion who inspired him to create some of history's most 
romantic music. For 14 years, they found love in each other. And Tchaikovsky's passionate music was written for none other than his Nadia, the love of his life. And then one day, they suddenly ended the relationship. No one knows for sure why. After that, neither of them lived very long without the other. Nadia quickly lost her health, and Peter died speaking her name. Yet their secrets live on in their love letters to each other. That's all we know of them. For 14 years, they expressed their feelings for each other in letters. Amazingly, the famous relationship of Peter Tchaikovsky and Nadia von Meck, which produced some of the world's most romantic music, was from two lovers who never once met each other face to face. And now you know the rest of the what? The rest of the story. They fell in love through the written word. We come to love Jesus through the written word of God. And it's even more powerful because the word of God, the Bible, is the living word of God. All right, so that's the paradox of love. And then there's one more here, the paradox of salvation. And Peter says in verse 9, you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The paradox here is salvation is something we are receiving and will receive in the future. So there there are some benefits of salvation we definitely have right now. Our souls have been redeemed. Our hearts have been regenerated. We have received the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. And we have the church right now, which is the kingdom of God. But there are aspects of our salvation that remain in the future, right? Our bodies have not been redeemed. Now, our spirits have, our souls, but not our bodies. That happens when Jesus returns and you have the resurrection of the dead. That's when our bodies are redeemed. And though we're in the kingdom of God now, there's an aspect of the kingdom of God that awaits the future, the new heavens and the new earth. And even our spirits, our souls, you know, will have their final confirmation in holiness at that time in the future. So the kingdom is now and not yet. In fact, at various places in the Bible, it speaks of our salvation as we were saved in the past, we are being saved right now in the present, and we will be saved in the future. So that's a paradox. But this whole process that we've been talking about that Peter describes here, the process of trials, of tests, of sometimes persecutions, and of suffering, when we respond in faith and in joy and in love, the ultimate goal, and this is God's desire for us, is our salvation. Now, the final story is about Abdu. Abdu is a Christian Syrian, and a few years ago, he was uh, kidnapped by terrorists. I mean, they just, he walked out of his shop, locked the door, And then ISIS, with their scarves over their face, uh, grabbed him, kidnapped him, took him away for 10 days of torture and beatings. And the leader said, why did you even let this Christian pig survive? And he began beating on him. They had him call his family and ask uh, that they would ransom him while they could hear him being tortured. And finally, one of the guards said to him, it's over, Uh, we're going to kill you. And they blindfolded him, took him out in the middle of nowhere, let him out of the Jeep, put him down on his knees. And Abdul said he began praying that they would use a gun and, and not use a knife. And he began counting to 50. And before he got to 50, he did not hear bullets. He heard the sound of the Jeep as it was driving away. 
And he finally took off his blindfold and found that he'd just been left out there. So he and his father, they left Syria. They moved away. They left behind his shop and all of his possessions. But Abdu is a Christian. And like I said, and, and this is his statement. Um, he says, he says, you can lose everything. You can lose everything. But life in the Lord cannot be lost, whatever else happens. You can lose everything, but life in the Lord cannot be lost, whatever else happens. Rod Dreher, in his book, Live Not By Lies, says we need to tell the stories of the persecuted church. If we don't tell these stories and incorporate them into our theology of suffering, if we don't understand that we can be Christians, be totally faithful to God, and still experience trials, tests, sufferings, and even persecutions, we will not stand in the day of testing. We need to tell these stories to ourselves and to our children and understand them and develop a theology of suffering. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today, God, that no matter what we are going through, we are still entitled to joy. We're still entitled to love. We're still entitled to faith. And the ultimate outcome of what we're experiencing in our lives right here, right now, is salvation. We've got a taste of it right now. The hors d'oeuvres are being served to us even here. But the great final banquet is yet in the future for us. That's something we hope for and look forward to in the future. But we thank you, God, for your constants in our lives right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.